Awesome. Glad you guys are here. Welcome to New Community if you're new with us. And if you're not new with us, glad you're here. And uh, my name's Dave. I'm the pastor here, if you didn't know that. Turn with me to... Uh, <laughs> Hi, James. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Now, I'm telling you, I am so... You know, I t- hopefully, this comes out the right way. I am so overwhelmed with pride regarding our church. I'm so proud of our church. And I don't mean that like as if... I don't even know if I have like the license to say things like that. You know, I'm like this young dude, you know. But uh, my goodness, you know, I think about how much we've grown in the last couple of years, you know, somewhat by numbers maybe, but not necessarily that. But like, do you realize, many of you see, many of you don't realize this, but I mean, even in the last couple of weeks, we've seen three people come to Jesus. One of them may have been like a recommitment, but I mean, praise God. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, praise God, you know, and sometimes it doesn't happen on a Sunday morning because we're, we're a church of churches. We don't, so, church is not the location or the time zone or something like that. It's like we are church all the time, right? So I'm mean, people coming to Jesus in our home groups and in neighborhoods. And I mean, I just, I've seen in the last, I've been the pastor for about four years. Most of you know that. And I've seen the confidence and the boldness to lovingly reach out to people increase. You know, we've raised in the last couple of, of weeks and, 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 and it's, Couple, like almost a couple thousand dollars to help families that are hurting. And it's because we really manipulated people to give, huh? I make sure to use that guilt trip a lot. And I make sure that evangelism, that you feel really guilty about that too, right? I mean, you guys all know, like, my goodness, like, seriously, there are families in our church that are really struggling with the whole, you know, a lot of things going on financially. And yet we're there to try to support them. We're helping people behind the scenes. You're giving. I mean, I'm just watching this. The, Oh, do you guys have a good time in worship, just enjoying Jesus? That's amazing. Do you realize, like, like, just how people engage their hearts in worship? As a pastor, it's like, oh, thank you, Lord, that we really, there's such a maturity happening in us and in, and in you. And I know I'm growing, but I, I, you know, I know that you guys are growing too. So I, I just wanted to say that I think about it, honestly, I think about it, like, on Mondays, you know, I'm just praying and stuff and talking to my, my Jesus. And sometimes he has to remind me of how much he's doing in the church, but generally speaking, I'm just excited just in me. But sometimes the, Jesus comes in and goes, do you see what I'm doing in this church? I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot, you know? And I'm just telling you, I got I to gotta say it on Sundays because I think about it on Mondays, you know what I'm saying? And I watch God doing stuff all over. You guys are giving your faith away, giving your love away, giving, and, um, and just uh, oh, so proud of you guys, so, so loving what God is doing. So praise God. I love you guys. Love this. Love this. So we're in this journey in these last, I don't know, number of weeks. And uh, I love what Scott told me. Scott today is like, man, we got to keep on this journey into God's heart. You know, he's like, man, we got to be like the most confident church by the end of the year. And I'm thinking, well, that's like a good idea. I like that. You know, we've just been pressing into the heart of God. It's been kind of theology 101 or 401, but we've been pressing into like, what is God like? You know, what does more than just like, oh, he's sovereign and you know, all that kind of stuff, but like, how does he feel? What, what is his heart like towards us, towards other people? And we've seen just his burning desire and his affections and his love for people, for us specifically. We've seen his compassion, how he's moved by our needs. We've seen that his love is a holy love, right? Amen, a, a perfect, a holy love that's other than ours. And not that we can't love like he loves, that's the goal. But we're pressing into this, this heart of God, this desire that God has in his heart for us because we believe, I'm absolutely convinced of this, like nobody could convince me otherwise. So if you were like, Dave, this just isn't relevant, I'd be like, I think I'd start crying. In fact, sometimes I do. In intercession, I just cry out to God, God, connect the dots. I mean, seriously, God's emotions will heal your emotions. If you'll connect with God's love, it will change your heart and cause you to do what? Love like he loves. Not love with our love, faulty, kind of human, even if it's good, it's still not holy, but love him with his love and love others with his love. Amen? I mean, isn't that the goal? Be holy. I mean, one of the goals, be holy for he is holy. Amen? And so, what we're learning lately in these last couple of weeks is just what is his heart like? Because I don't want to just, I've told you this, I don't want to just be like, you should know God's love. Okay, move on to the next subject. 
you know, it just really bothers me, honestly. It's like, I, I mean, seriously, you should think like God. Let's be transformed with the renewing of our mind. Oh, okay, how do I do that? And what does that look like? Well, I don't know, figure it out on your own, you know? So as a pastor, it's like I'm so passionate that people would get this, you know? So we're just going to press it into this, and we're going to, we'll talk about how to make this happen and all that, but uh, this is such a key for us getting unstuck and moving forward. And today, what I want to do is I want to keep talking about his desire for us. Last week, if you didn't get that, we talked about God's jealous desire for us. And I want to ask a question this morning, and then I want to answer it. I don't even know if you're asking this question, but I'm going to ask it for you because it's really relevant. And then I'm going to answer the question for you. Okay? Got it? You know, you're like, so I'm going to put the question in, and then I'm going to answer my own question. No, I'm going to answer the question that's in the Word of God. But why has Jesus not come back yet? For two thousand years. Do you realize how long that is? I mean, we just like say that so flippantly. Two thousand years, that's a lot of church history. I mean, a lot of history in general. Anyone who's like a church or a history major, overwhelmed, you know? Uh, uh, how, why? We obviously, re- everyone realizes he hasn't come back yet, right? You know what I'm saying? There's a couple of cults out there that want to say something else, but he hasn't come back yet. When he comes back, He'll make everything right. Amen? He'll, with new heaven, new earth, we get glorified bodies, we reign with Jesus, justice, righteousness on the earth. Oh, it's going to be so beautiful. I, I long for that day, right? So, dude, what's going on? You know, hey, yo, Jesus, you know, just wondering, like, what's taking, what's taking forever? What's taking so long here, you know? Why hasn't he come back yet? You may not know that that's a relevant question, but here's the deal. It is probably the most relevant question for your life. Because you cannot understand who you are and your purpose. Okay, so I'll do it this way. You're like, uh, I don't really care when Jesus is coming back. Or I just really just am struggling with my whole the job thing. Or I'm struggling with like my marriage. Can we just talk about that? Let, let me just say, you ever, you ever wonder? Oh, I don't what God's purpose for my life is. You ever, you ever wonder, oh man, I just, just, I, just sometimes I don't know who I am, you know? Oh, I just really wish I could like really know God deeper and intimacy and I just really, like, who am I? You know what? Why am I here? And you ever wonder things like that? You know, those deep like core questions that every human being wonders? Guess what? If you can't answer the question I'm going to answer today, You can't answer the other questions. Until you understand God's story, you can't understand your own. And unless you understand the beginning of the story, why it all began, and if you don't understand the end of the story, where it's all going, you can't understand the whole climax, resolution, plot, everything. You can't understand your part. So so many Christians just trying to answer the question, what's God's calling for my life? What's my spiritual gift? And they don't understand that it's in the framework of this, the end... The end times, or whatever you want to call it, the return of Christ. So why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And why? Why hasn't he come back yet? So Matthew 24, here we go. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty passionate about this subject, actually. And uh, so I'll probably be pretty intense at times. I love you. And hopefully I don't offend anyone. But if I do, we'll work it out. So... Uh, just, I love you, all right? First, first step there. Okay, so Matthew 24, here's the context. Jesus and his disciples, verse 1, they're hanging out. Uh, uh, they were hanging out in Jerusalem at the temple. This is the week before Jesus dies and rises again. I mean, okay, this is the context of it. And his disciples go, hey, look at that building over there. I mean, one of the, one of the great wonders of the world, the, uh, the temple at the time. You know, and it's just a beautiful place. And Jesus says in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And actually, about 40 years after Jesus rose from the grave, the Jerusalem temple at 70 AD was destroyed, and the, and the, and the Jewish people have not had a temple since. So, I mean, Jesus is like, hey, you see, this is all going to get thrown down. That provokes something within them, and they ask Jesus, 
Two questions, very, 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 very important that you understand in the context, what questions that they're asking Jesus and what questions he's answering. You flowing with me? Okay, I'm going to be a little bit academic today because I need you to see this so we can really, you know, we want to have a biblical understanding. Amen? I don't want to just, you know, preach, you know, I'll just tell stories and show movie clips and then we'll be fine and stuff. Okay, so I want you to see in the word what's going on. That was meant to be facetious. Okay, so now as he sat, so verse three, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so literally the Mount of Olives is just like a cross, like a little, Jerusalem's on one hill, then there's this valley, and then there's this Mount of Olives. So they're sitting and they're looking at the temple, and, and the disciples are like, hmm, I don't know what he was talking about. And the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Referring, you know, like, when's all that temple destruction thing going to happen? And they say, what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age. They're just like us, aren't they? Yeah. So, so when, are you, when are you coming back? And what's the sign? Like, how are we going to know? We want to, like, know. Okay? So this is exactly what they're going to ask. When is all this going to happen? When? And what is the sign? And notice what they specifically ask. When is the sign of the end? Right? Your coming and of the end of the age. Pretty much same, same thing, right? He comes back. When Jesus comes back, he'll establish new heaven, new earth on the earth, and, and this age will be done with. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. God will be all in and all. He'll fix everything. He'll make everything right. And what's called the next age, the new heaven, new earth thing, will, will start. It's a beautiful thing, okay? So they're wondering, hey, when's this one going to stop and the other one going to begin? When are you going to come back? But they're specifically saying, when is it going to happen and what is the sign? That's what we need to know today, right? We want to know what's the sign of the coming of Jesus because that's going to tell us, uh, it's going to answer the question I raised earlier. So Jesus actually answers their question very, very, very specifically. He tells them, what's not a sign, and he tells them what is a sign because he wants them to understand what to be looking for, or rather what we should be looking for, of course. So he says to them in verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed or be careful that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Everyone say, the end. The end is not yet. Verse 7, 4, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Some people translate this labor pains. You could do that if you want. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will uh, be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Everyone say the end. He who endures to the end will be saved. Now, anyone ever read Revelation? Have Have you figured it out yet? Would you say that Revelation is somewhat clear or somewhat unclear? Okay, there's a, there's a biblical interpretation uh, a principle that you guys all need to know that we, we apply here at this church. That well, we believe, first of all, that this is actually the, the Word of God, like the inspired Word of God. It's not just a storybook or a novel. It's not fiction. It's, this is true. And, we, and we, what we do is we believe that Scripture interprets Scripture one, because the Holy Spirit wrote the whole Bible through human beings, praise God. But the Holy Spirit wrote, so Scripture interprets Scripture. And there's a principle that we operate on, that you interpret unclear passages, ones that you're not really sure about, with clear passages. Does that make sense? And so, so, so for example, like, so for example, Revelation. Huh. Yeah. So we interpret the, huh, with Clear passages. This Matthew 24 is the most definitive, clear statement about the end times. Huh? It's like Jesus knew what was going to happen. Funny. It's like he was already there or something like that. I don't know. Uh, so it's like literally like Jesus tells us what's going to happen with a timeline that is extremely clear, as if he'd already like been there and just you know, yeah, this is what's going to happen. He's extremely clear. You don't see. 
women riding on beasts and seven hills and numbers and horns and eyes and stuff like that, which, by the way, I love Revelation. It's totally true. It's going to be fulfilled. I mean, we love all that stuff. But I'm just saying, like, we just, you just don't know. And so anyone who starts their, quote-unquote, end times theology, or when Jesus is going to come back, and crescents of the rapture and all that kind of stuff, with Revelation, you're starting in the wrong place, sorry. Plus Revelation, it has like hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. So if you don't know like Daniel, Psalm 2, etc., etc., you're just going to be confused. So we turn to Matthew 24, and he literally, Jesus, huh, the expert, gives us a timeline for his return. Super important here. Super important. And... Notice that he says, the first thing he says is, don't be deceived. So, you think, you think maybe we might be prone to deception in this particular area? And then, and then remember, and then you notice that he also said, and don't be troubled. Right? Verse 6. See, make sure you're not troubled. Why did he say that? How, how many of you are prone to fear, anxiety, worry? When you hear things about wars, rumors of wars, Iran's nuclear things, uh, shootings in schools, and et cetera, et cetera. Lots of crazy stuff. How about crazy tornado, tornadoes for the second time in 12 months just ravishing Central America, Central, the Central uh, West Coast or whatever. What's that called? Midwest. There, it's what it's called. I was like, Central West? What is that? Okay. It's a Central Time Zone or something. Okay. How... But how many of us are prone to being troubled? You think Jesus might have said some of these things because we're prone to being deceived about something? You think, you think that Jesus mentioned because we're prone to be getting afraid, troubled, worried, anxious? Because we seem to get our attention on the wrong things rather than the right things. We seem to get, we seem to get preoccupied, worried, caught up, distracted, complacent, busy with temporal, cultural, consumeristic, etc., etc. type things instead of eternal kingdom type things you think right that's that, that seems to be our our uh, predisposition without his help and so he literally says he says hey there's going to be these people who rise up and say that they're the christ there's going to be these like false christs and false prophets and don't be deceived by that it's going to happen and you're going to hear about wars you're going to hear about rumors of wars so either they're happening or they're not really happening and he says that these things have to take place but listen to what he says in verse six but but what? The end is not yet. Now, I'm not sure why we, we missed that phrase, but I want you to understand what he just did. Did you notice that he asked, they asked a question in verse 3. Tell us the sign of the end of, your, of, the, end of the age, right? Hey, when's the end going to happen and what's the sign? Do you see that? Verse 3. Then in verse 6, he says, blah, 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 some stuff's going to happen. Not the end. Do you realize what he just did? He told you that wars, rumors of wars, etc., etc., have nothing to do with the end. He just told you they're not signs. They're not the sign of his coming. They're not the sign of the end. Hey, 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 you know, you know, there's, there's wars, there's rumors of wars and all that kind of stuff. And then if you notice in verse 7, the word for is an explanatory word. It means that, hey, I just said some things and I'm going to explain it some more. Okay? For, let me tell you some more. Okay? Like, he's going to say, for nation will rise against nation. Yeah, what's going to happen is kingdoms are going to take over other kingdoms. Nations are going to rise. Nations are going to fall. Things are going to happen. There's going to be changing governments and et cetera, et cetera. And he goes on and he says that there's going to be famines. Right? Famines where you can't, the people can't feed each other. Maybe crops are going to be messed up. Or maybe droughts. Maybe economic recessions. Ups and downs. Pestilences. At least in my New King James Version. Diseases. Weird diseases that just like, poop. Oh, 1950s. Where did AIDS come from? You know, stuff like that. Just, wow, that's crazy. Earthquakes in various places. And do you realize what he is saying? It's right here. Right here. I'm just saying what's right there in the Bible. He says right here. You, oh, oh, you see those famines? Oh, you see those diseases? Oh, do you see those earthquakes? Do you see those wars? Do you see all those catastrophes and problems in the world, whether created by human beings or just because we live in a broken world where, you know, tornadoes and all that kind of stuff? you see all that? Not a sign. Huh? Really? 
wait a minute, but that's not what I've been told all my life if you were raised in the church. That's not what like, everyone emphasizes. You know, people come to you and they say, oh, oh yeah, Jesus has got to come back soon because things are just getting really bad. How many of you ever said that? No, no, don't raise your hand. I'm sorry. How many of you ever said that, thought that, or were taught that, right? Right? You, I'm so, I love you. You were wrong. Okay, so they, they were wrong. They were wrong. See that? See that? See that? Not the end. Not the end. Not the end. He says it right there. And then he actually goes on even into verse 9 and does explain somewhat of like an increase of things getting worse. But I don't know, somewhat of a, uh, uh, I think people kind of miss this. But yeah, hey, persecution, people getting offended uh, at God and each other, division, you know, false prophets. Verse 12, lawlessness and sin and, and people, grow, hearts growing cold, you know, Christians apostatizing or falling away and stuff like that. Wow, kind of bad stuff, you know. And he goes, it's not the end. None of those things are a sign of the end. None of those things. None of those things at all. What those are are the context in which we live. In fact, a lot of times people go, but Dave, verse 8, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. You know, this is labor pains. Labor pains increase. And so when there's more earthquakes, that means that the labor pains are getting increasing. And so therefore, if they're increasing, then those ends are getting closer. Well, it's just a great... It's a good, good argument, you know what I'm saying? It's a good, it's a good argument. Uh, yeah, yeah, fine, fine. More earthquakes, labor pains increasing. I'm fine with that. Not a big deal. But they're not the sign of the end. In fact, let, let, let's use that labor thing for a second. I always, I always feel scared bringing up labor. I'm a guy. I know that. My wife's had three kids. I so honor my wife for being an amazing mother, but also just, oh, my goodness, delivering three children. And I've been there in the room. Done nothing, you, you just, right? That's <laughs> oh, the most painful experience I've ever been through, right? Okay, so, okay, so, I can't imagine what ladies go through, but let's say, let's pretend for a second that that Jesus is using the labor pain concept. Do you know in Romans chapter eight that Paul actually says that the earth has been groaning with labor pains, same word, since Adam and Eve. So there's actually stages to labor. Again, women, ladies, please forgive me. Like I, like I have no experience in this. I'm just saying what I've read. So there's what's called early labor, right? Where, 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 where the cervix is dilating. And it's painful. It's painful. But the kid's not coming out yet. Just the pain is because the cervix is dilating. And, and that could take a while. You know, in fact, they actually, ladies, you know, have a thing, Braxton Hicks or pre-labor and all this kind of stuff could go on for a while, you know? And so, so this, you're in these contractions and this pain that is just causing the cervix to dilate, okay? And then there's this thing, funny, I, I think it's interesting that they use this word, they, there's this thing called transition, where, you, where you're, the body kicks into what's called active labor, like it goes into the next phase. And guess what? If you thought the first part was painful, the second part's even worse. You know, it's just like craziness, okay? And so, so you kick into this thing called transition or active labor where your body actually uh, uh, makes the cervix completely dilate, which is just insane. And then, and then, and then, only then when the cervix is completely dilated, you go into the second stage of labor, which is actually pushing the baby out. You don't push the baby out until the, the, the cervix is open. You don't push the baby out until the labor pains have actually made it so that you're ready for the baby to come out. Do, do, if anything, if anything, all the way from verse 6 to 13, Jesus is saying that there have been these sorrows, these pains in the world since Adam and Eve sinned, and, and, and maybe they are getting worse or whatever, but the transition hasn't happened. See, something has to happen for, if you will, the labor to kick into active labor and for there to be a transition there. There is a sign. There is one sign, one sign that is the indicator of the end and of his coming. One sign. And it is not wars, catastrophes, famines, America falling away from Jesus. None of it. None of it. And, all, and, and maybe earthquakes, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, listen to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't watch for 
current events. I'm not saying that. Israel is actually very important. We'll talk about Israel another day, okay? Israel is very important. Timelines and current events, all wonderful. Okay? I'm not saying that earthquakes couldn't possibly increase. We've seen a ton in the last couple years uh, recently. I don't know if there's more or less. I have no idea. But let's say there are maybe labor pains. You know, you went from like a dilated two to a dilated three, but you're still not ready to push. You're still not ready to push. And so I'm not necessarily saying that uh, current events or something like that aren't secondary or something signs, but they're not the sign. They're not the transition. So what is? Notice in verse 13, he says, but he who endures to the end will be saved. See, all that just took place, all that he was describing before verse 13 is the context in which we're enduring. And what does enduring mean? It means that you're going to be persecuted, that we as the church, we inherit glory, but we also inherit the sufferings of people who have been brought from darkness out of light and who are parting with Jesus on his mission Right? He's rescuing people from hell, and, and we're the people of light. We're the people of his kingdom who are like, yay, Jesus, we're on Jesus' side, and the world is in opposition to that, and so there's going to be persecution. There's going to be a battle, and Jesus is saying, man, you've got to stand firm against persecution. You've got to stand firm against suffering. You've got to fir- stand firm, and don't let, don't let your heart become offended at God. Don't let your heart become weary. Don't let your heart become deceived or troubled or weighed down, and then he also talks about this lawlessness, He's saying enduring to the end is also about walking in purity and holiness and loving Jesus with everything within us and being able to resist temptation as well, right? The deceitfulness of wealth, the anxiety of this world, all those things that choke God's people out that Jesus warned us about. He's just warning. He's saying this is the context in which you're going to live, do ministry, be on mission with me, partner with me. This is the context in which you are going to live up until the end. And he's saying you need to endure against persecution and against sin, temptation. So none of that's new. Does that make sense? For the last 2,000 years, the church has been being persecuted. For 2,000 years, there's been lawlessness. For 2,000 years, and okay, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. Okay, maybe, maybe. You know, it's, it's somewhat of a deceptive way of looking at history to think of it as like increasingly getting better or increasingly getting worse. Human history is moving somewhere according to the will of God, but human beings kind of go up and down. We live in a very big world. There's a lot of human history. You have nations getting closer to Jesus, and you have nations walking away from Jesus. Just because America, there's a lot of sin and brokenness and maybe judgment because of that, doesn't mean that every nation in the world is doing that. And see, so it's a wrong kind of focus to actually think that the end is based upon the morality of America or what's happening in America only. It's a very, that's a very ethnocentric, kind of prideful, selfish way of looking at it. It's also wrong to base what we think the end is based upon these outward things. As if, listen, as if God were controlled or manipulated by the sin of men. You know, literally, if I were to ask you, like, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? You'd say, well, because things haven't gotten bad enough. And most people think that God is waiting, frustrated, impatient, just waiting for it to get bad, you know? And, and as if God is waiting for things to get so bad, he has to swoop in and rescue us before it gets so bad. As if God is manipulated or controlled or God's sovereign plan to redeem the nations and make everything new is based upon nuclear bombs, global warming, chemical warfare, Iran, Korea, you know, whatever, Russia, you know what I'm saying? As if it's based on numerology, you know, like, well, I've calculated it, and there is this thing in the Bible, there's a secret numerological code, and I have figured out the date that he's coming back, and all that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is all that, we all, we would, none of us would probably do that, all that actually is because the church has a faulty foundation. I'm, again, I'm not saying that earthquakes couldn't be getting worse. What I'm saying is, I see cracks up here at the top of the building. You know, on, le- on story, on the third, fourth story. Something's just not right up here. You know, some of you probably have even heard people talk about the end times. You go, something's just not right here. It's like rooted in fear. What's going on here? And you know what the problem with the cracks up here are? Something's wrong with the foundation. People have started in the wrong place. They don't understand what the sign of the end is or why he hasn't come back yet. That's the key question. And so they're living in fear, anxiety, worry. They're looking at catastrophes and these kinds of things, thinking that God is manipulated or concerned or controlled by these things rather than by his own sovereign will. 
They're like, dude, Dave, just tell us what it is already. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Everyone say the end. This is the transition. This is the variable. This is why he has not come back yet. This is it. This is the only sign that we need to be looking for. Again, I'm not necessarily saying it's wrong to look at the current event. But this is the only relevant one. When this happens, and only when this happens, will he, will the end begin. We might, we've been in the end time since Jesus rose from the grave. We might be in the final days, but you don't get into the final hour until that verse 14 happens. Until verse 14 is fulfilled. Until every nation has heard the gospel, you don't get into the end times. You don't get into the final hour. And so you can have labor pain after labor pain after labor pain, and it can get worse, and the contractions can get closer, but the the world, if you will, will not kick into active labor And the pushing will not begin until verse 14 happens. It can't happen. And there's a reason why. There is a reason why. I'll show you some scriptures here in a second. So God is not controlled by any of these things. He's not like, dang it, they're going to blow themselves up. Oh, that I ran. What am I going to do about that? He's not impatient. He's not frustrated. There's only one reason he hasn't come back yet, and here it is. It's related to this verse, and I'll show you scriptures. He's only coming back for his inheritance. Jesus is only coming back for his inheritance. The reason why everything was created, the reason why he died, is the same reason he's coming back. He's not impatient. He's not frustrated. He is burning with desire. He is jealous for the nations to be his inheritance. And he will not come back until they're all his. Then, my goodness, it could go fast. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads it, let him understand them. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 17, let him who is on the housetop not go down to, uh, to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be unless those days, the great tribulation, no, were shortened. No flesh will be saved, but for the elect's sake, those Days will be shortened. You don't know how many people quote verses like that and apply it to like the 1900s. God's shortening the days, making the technology speed up. You know, there's a great tribulation. We're not in the great tribulation. My goodness, when you get into the great tribulation, you're going to know it. You know, I tell people, and by the way, you can read this, First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. It's impossible for the Antichrist to come. I'm sorry, no, I, I take, uh, let me switch my words. It's impossible. Read First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. It's impossible. By the way, I'm not going to tell you when the rapture is going to happen, but listen. It's impossible for the rapture to happen before verse 15. Just go ahead, read, read the Bible. It's impossible. So I tell people all the time, you know, don't worry. When you see that whole abomination of desolation thing, I, I think you'll know the Antichrist is all himself above the knowledge of God, you know, above God, and it's, cra- it's going to be crazy, you know? And there's going to be this great tribulation. I mean, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know what I'm saying? Like, you think it's bad now, persecution and the sin. This is the whole 666 thing. You can't even buy anything, you know? And, I, you know, people are all tracking the technology. Oh, now we have the technology. Put the 666, you know, computer chip on our hands. Our head. Yeah, hey, I'm not saying you shouldn't track the current events because all those things could be setting the stage. 
Okay, so I'm not dissing anyone for doing that, just saying that oftentimes we have the wrong focus. All that's wonderful and all, but I'm telling you, until verse 15 happens, you don't get to call it the Great Tribulation. And you know, according to the scriptures, this is three and a half years. Talk about short. We're talking like, I mean, according to what, what most scholars would say, that this time, Antichrist gets revealed, you know, three and a half years, he's going to be crazy. And then the sun and the moon and the stars are going to go dark, and I mean, it's just going to be nuts. Then you're talking catastrophes like we've never seen before. And that's partly what's going on in Revelation. <clears throat> but until verse 14 happens, that Antichrist is not going to be revealed. Until verse 14 happens, there's no rapture. In verse, until verse 14, the end is not yet. It's, none of those other things are signs. But only verse 14 is the sign. The transition. And like I said, here's the reason. Let me, let me bust out some scriptures here. Colossians chapter 1. We'll just throw it up here if we can. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Jesus, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Listen. All things were created through him and... For him. Okay, we didn't, we didn't get up there. That's okay, though. Verse 15. We're going to just go to verse 16 if you can. Hopefully we'll figure that out. There we go. Look at, the, look, look at the bottom here. All things were, go to the next slide, created through him and what? For him. The whole reason why God even created the world was to give people to Jesus as his inheritance. That's the whole reason it all started. What did, he, what did he create out of frustration and selfishness? No, he created out of love and desire, like we've been talking about the last number of weeks. That literally, the Father created the world in partnership with Jesus and made it all for his son Jesus, for Jesus to have an inheritance. That's what it means for him to be the firstborn, by the way. It's not like, oh my goodness, was Jesus born? I thought Jesus was always around. Of course he was always around. When it says that Jesus was the firstborn, it's not talking necessarily about his, like, that he was physically born. No, he's always been the son of God. It's referring to his preeminence as the son of God who gets the inheritance, right? In the ancient world, the firstborn son or the only son would get the inheritance. Jesus gets the inheritance. He is the firstborn in the sense that he's over all of creation, in the sense that he has all the authority, but he has all the authority because it was all made for him. So why would he come back without getting what he getting what God created for him. Why did he die? I know you know, already know the answer. Hebrews chapter 12. Look unto Jesus, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just one of many verses why Jesus died. Why did Jesus die for people? Why did the rightful ruler of this earth die for sinful, rebellious people? I have no idea. I mean, most of us are like, I don't know, I wouldn't do it. You know? <laughs> well, that's why you're not God. You know, I like to say that thing. It's always fun to say. He did it for one reason. You're the joy set before him. You are the treasure of his heart. You are his desire. You are his inheritance. You're the reason he created everything. When human beings sinned and walked away from God, yes, we died. But worse than that, Jesus lost his joy, his treasure. You are the lost sheep. Well, obviously, well, most of us have been found. If you don't know Jesus, you're his treasure just the same. And if you know Jesus, you are his found treasure for the joy set before him. Jesus chose the cross. He died to get you back. Imagine, you're the rightful ruler of, of this kingdom. And your subjects believe this other, you know, uh, fake ruler, this other ruler, you know, this other guy, coming, not even a ruler, this other guy comes in and goes, yeah, this king, your king, he's a liar, he's trying to manipulate and control, let's kick him out, we'll have a better kingdom without him. And so imagine that, you know, you're the rightful king of this kingdom, and your subjects kick you out, because they believe this other, other guy, this other guy becomes the uh, unlawful ruler and destroys your kingdom. You have two choices, don't you? Hmm... I could 
come and whoop on everyone and destroy everyone and get my land back. Then all of my subjects would die because I'd have to fight against them because they're on the side of this wrong king. Or I could do like holy subversion and I could come in and act like one of them or be one of them and I could win their hearts back. I could prove to them that I'm not the bad king they thought I was. I'm the good king who really loves them. I could show them that sickness, disease, death, cancer, AIDS are actually a byproduct of that bad false king's reign and that my kingdom's the good kingdom with life. And I could come in and I could heal people. Go figure. I could raise people from the dead. I could die for their sins. Take away the thing that is actually keeping them from me. Reconcile them back to me. I could win their hearts and we could start this holy, subversive movement to get people willingly back to me. See, what one did Jesus choose? Can you imagine if he came back 2,000 years ago, which he could have done, and just destroyed everyone? How many people would be saved? Maybe some Jewish people? I have no idea. Probably no one, because we all had sin, right? Somebody had to die to take away our sin so that we could be right with God because that's the reason he created us. So then why would he be like, oh yeah, I died, I created the nations for myself, I died for the nations, but I'm kind of tired of waiting now. Why? And yet so many of us, this is not the way we think, but it's the way God thinks. It's the way God thinks. Listen to this in, in Psalm 2, verse 8. The Father says to Jesus, the Father says to Jesus, Son, ask me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Whole another subject. Jesus actually has to ask God for something, but Father God says to Jesus, ask me, and I will give you as your inheritance the nations. That's a promise. Why have we not seen the return of Christ yet? Why hasn't he come back yet? Because he hasn't gotten his inheritance yet. The desire of his heart has not been fulfilled. The reason he died has not been accomplished fully. Yet, and every person who bows the knee to Jesus willingly, that fulfills his desire and the reason he died, but it's not complete yet. The promise of God has not been fulfilled. Do you really think, right, we always say here that the promises of God are sure, that God will, will do what he said he was going to do. Do you really think that Jesus, who said the Father will answer any prayer you pray, I mean, remember Jesus, asking you shall receive, seeking you shall find, knocking the door will be open to you. Jesus has to ask too. Do you think he's going to get what he's going to ask the Father for? Do you think the Father's going to be like, no, I'm done waiting, okay? We're done. I don't care if you're asking me. We're going to do No! Jesus is asking the Father for something, and it's going to happen. Jesus is going to get the desire of his heart. The Father will fulfill his promise. God cannot lie. Look at Revelation 7. I love this. this is my verse. It says in Revelation 7, at the end, verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. How many people are going to be in heaven? I don't know, but you ain't going to be able to count it. Oh, I thought it was just 144,000. Yeah, that's just sad. Behold, a great multitude, which no one could number. Listen, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues or languages standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb clothed with white robes. Do you realize this is a prophetic picture of the end? We have a promise in the Word, and now we have it fulfilled right here in Revelation 7. And do you know what it says right here? Every nation. That, that's, not called to, that's not talking about nation states. That's not talking about geographical boundaries like China. It's talking about ethnic groupings. Tribes. Do, do you know what a, a tribe is? That's a biological family group, like the tribe of Benjamin of Israel. It's a smaller grouping. Like, how small does this go? We really have no idea. 
every language? Do you know how many dialects there are? It's insane. How many people groups there are? This is crazy. That he's not coming back until every tribal group is his. Now, that could just be like one person saved out of that representative group. I, I, I don't know. We, here's the deal. We have no idea. Straight up, we have no idea what Jesus means by all nations, tribes, languages. We have no idea. There could be some like random group in the Amazon we have no idea about. We don't even know how he wants to break it down. All we know is that I'm still here because he hasn't gotten his inheritance yet, and it's the only thing that is keeping him from not coming back because he's only coming back for the desire of his heart. That's it. That's it. Think about it. It's promised in Psalm 2. It's prophesied in Matthew 28 and Revelation 7. And it's commanded. Go and make disciples of how many nations? Didn't he promise Abraham all nations would be blessed? I thought thought evil was going to increase and things were just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Or maybe things are going to get better and better or maybe both at the same time. I'll show you some scriptures on that later. But it says that every nation is our target to make disciples of. And that if we'll disciple nations, then we'll see them blessed because, of course, when you walk under the authority of the rightful ruler, it's going to bring his kingdom and his blessing. Amen? There's probably a lot of questions that maybe you still have. But let's just kind of just respond this way. This means that the motivation for evangelism, missions, church planning, it's not guilt, it's not shame, it's not fear. It actually means that the motivation for evangelism actually isn't even need. People need Jesus. He's the only cure to the disease called sin and death. He's the only rescue for people from hell, which God doesn't want anyone to go there. It's not his will. It's the only cure. It's the only way. Way, truth, and life, right? And yet that's not the primary motivation. The primary motivation is actually his desire. We can be motivated by people's need for Jesus, that's important. It's compassion. But actually, the whole reason why you and I are called to make disciples has everything to do with his inheritance. See, here's the deal. When we are hoping that Jesus comes back without hoping for the nations to be his inheritance, then we're, forgive me, hoping people to hell. Now, I, I hope, I want Jesus to come back. Praise God, hallelujah. I want him to come back, but I don't want him to come back without his inheritance. And to actually look at the signs without looking at the number one sign means that I'm responding to fear, and it's actually selfish, isn't it? Rather than wanting what he wants. And what what the Lord is wanting to just teach us I mean, where we're going to go with this, Lord knows. Because the response to this, there's so many things, and we'll unpack it. But can we just start with this? That we would want what He wants. That we would love what He loves. Oh, that we would desire what our Lord desires. That we would desire as a bride, would agree in her bridegroom's desires. That's the cry of my heart, a church that is obsessed with Jesus getting his inheritance. I mean, it begins with you understanding this. You are the desire of his heart. You're the reason he created. You're the reason he died. And you are the treasure of his heart. And he has purchased you with his blood. That means that you have fulfilled the joy of his heart. You are the apple of his eye. You are his covenant people. We as his church are his bride. And he loves us. 
Praise God. And we as a church want to give him our full, complete inheritance, our worship, our affection, our love, our allegiance and devotion. But do you realize that if you don't want what he wants, if you're not about, do you realize all of human history is moving towards this end where he will reign on the earth. All of human history is moving towards this end where the nations are his inheritance. And so if you're not about the father's business, if you're not seeking first the kingdom, which cannot be defined any other way than you're about this, that you want this, that your life is about this. I don't know what you're living for. I mean, honestly, if this doesn't move you, I... Not that you have to feel it, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, oh, I don't know, this is just like so irrelevant. Like, really? Really? The whole reason why God created the world? Your whole existence defined by you being his inheritance and then partnering with him and it's not relevant to you? I don't know what's wrong with us if we think that. He said, seek first the kingdom. And yet we're, and I'm not trying to rebuke anyone. That came off really intense, but I'm just trying to say, look, hello, you know? What else are we living for? Why are we so distracted by little things? And I'm not saying God doesn't want to provide for you financially and all that. I mean, seek first the kingdom and these Things shall be added unto you. He wants to take care of you. But my goodness, we're so focused on all these. What? When the one thing has been distracted, and because end times teaching always focuses on the problems and the signs and the world's getting so bad and all this kind of stuff, we have forgotten the desire of his heart. So respond by saying, you desire me this way. And oh God, give me your heart. I want to love what you love. And in your program, I left a piece of paper that on the back, it just says, who is Jesus' inheritance that hasn't been found in your life? People, friends, family, neighbors, write them down. And then pray Psalm 2 over them. Father, I ask you, give Jesus his inheritance. Give them, give, give Bob to Jesus. Give George to Jesus. Give Mary to Jesus. God, give this family to Jesus. Give Thailand to Jesus. Give that people group to Jesus. And begin to ask him, for his heart, begin to ask him for people to come to Jesus. Begin to ask him for opportunities to share your faith. Not because of guilt and shame and all that stuff. I mean, I hope you don't respond to it like that. But rather out of love. Amen? Amen.